You are now listening to the January 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible Sermon and Respectable Sins. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Justin Kong with Let's Read the Bible. In some relationships, they are the strong and then are the weak. The strong is in an advantageous or stronger position, while the weak is in a disadvantaged or weak position. So, in a lot of cases, the strong scoffs at the weak, belittles them, and even uses physical violence. In essence, those that are domineering in a relationship can sometimes be cruel and oppressive. We sometimes see instances of relationships such as these in newspapers and media. But why do you think these strong personalities display such undesirable behavior? What kind of core values do you think they have to act in such ways to the weak? Those who dominate do so because they are motivated by their self-perceptions of power, authority, and sometimes wealth that comes from their display of such behaviors. This kind of person who seek to control others and exercise their power over those who are weak will themselves behave weak to those who are stronger than they are. And the world is full of such behaviors, whether we can see it or not. This is truly a sad and unfortunate situation. I'm referring to the situation in which the weak are forced to live under the domination of the strong. But even though the world is in such a way, children of God should never show such behavior. However, unfortunately, we still see such behaviors in Christian communities. If there are any among us who display such manipulative behavior, please understand the word of God immediately. Proverbs chapter 14 that we are going to read today contain many words of wisdom. I hope you will be able to find much wisdom as you can from it while you read each verse. I'd like for us to especially contemplate Proverbs chapter 14 verse 31. This is what Proverbs chapter 14 verse 31 says. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Here, the word oppress means to press down, to take deceitfully, and to exercise authority unjustly. If any of us think that we can maltreat or abuse others because they are poor, not only demeans them, but the Bible says it is also a reproach to God who created them. Isn't that a marvelous description? When we are unkind to the weak because we think they are below us, God takes it as contempt toward him. If we apply this word to us, we must have dishonored God countless times without realizing it. Do you feel sorry to God for your actions? If so, we must confess our wrongdoings and repent, and come back to God. The same verse says that those who are generous to the needy honor God. Even Jesus said in Matthew 25, Jesus said that when we take care of the hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, and oppressed, we serve of Jesus. I hope we will all live by the values of the kingdom of God, not by worldly values. Let's read Proverbs chapter 14 verses 1 to 35 together. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. When there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. 
A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, the folly of fools is deceiving. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. The house of the wit will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to its steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil bow down before the good, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is disliked even by its neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. A truthful witness saves lies but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In the fear of the Lord one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts fully. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. We just read Proverbs chapter 14 verses 1 to 35.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is the Kingdom of God. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. We are starting a brand new sermon series is going to be what Jesus is for. And the reason for this sermon series is that too often we as Christians, when we enter a room or we go somewhere, People are like, oh no, the Christians are here. You know, they're going to suck the funny right out of the room. Oh gosh, Killjoy's here. Because we're often known for what we're against. Of course, there are things that, we are, that Christians are against. Uh, we're against sin and we're against unholiness. But the, the reason for this is we want to be known for what we're for. Amen? What are we for? And to know this, we need to know what Jesus is for. So we're going to be looking at what Jesus is for over this summer. And not just what he was for, but why he was for it. Because that's just as important, why he was for what he was for. So perhaps the, the easiest way to know what somebody is for is to know what's on their mind. The question is, we're not mind readers. How do you know what's on somebody's mind? Well, the simplest way to know what's on somebody's mind is to do what? Listen to what comes out of their mouth. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 6? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the same goes with posting. That's the modern day way of speaking, right? I can tell you what's important to a person by simply looking at what they post online. We have to look and we go, well, what was important to Jesus? Well, what was he talk? What did he talk about regularly and often? And one of the things that we see him talking about, not only early in his ministry, but all throughout his ministry is this subject right here. The kingdom of God 
and the kingdom of heaven, one and the same thing, but we see him talking about this. Literally, Jesus kicked off his earthly ministry by talking about this. So when did Jesus kick off his earthly ministry? Well, he was baptized by John in the Jordan, and then he immediately went into the desert where he was tempted for 40 days, and then he started his earthly ministry right after that. And how did he start it? He started it this way. Matthew 4, verse 17 says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from that time, from the point of John's baptism and his temptation, he started to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he literally initiated his ministry, kicked off his ministry by talking about the kingdom. But what we see is that he continued to talk about the kingdom all throughout his ministry. And one of the ways that we see this happening is in the parables. So many of the parables are explaining what the kingdom is all about. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 13 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. A few verses later in verse 44, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Again, a few verses later in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And then in chapter 20 of Matthew, we read this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And again, in Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So parable after parable, teaching after teaching, Jesus is like, this is what the kingdom's about. This is what it's like. This is what it can be compared to. He was always talking about the kingdom. What's interesting is, of course, Jesus initiated his ministry after being baptized by John the Baptist. What was John's purpose? John came as the forerunner to Jesus, didn't he? He was the Elijah that was to come, to come to prepare the way of the Lord. So John came before Jesus to prepare the hearts of the people. How did he prepare the hearts of the people? Well, let's look at what he preached about. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's why this is so incredibly important. We literally see the kingdom of God being proclaimed in preparation of Jesus's ministry, at the initiation of Jesus's ministry, and throughout the duration of Jesus's ministry. The kingdom of God is a reoccurring theme. It is a thread that runs right through John's ministry, right through Jesus's ministry, all the way to the very end. And when I say right to the very end, I don't mean his crucifixion. What did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? He stayed on earth for 40 days, but what did he do while he was on earth for those 40 days? Well, let's look what the Bible says. Acts 1.3 says, he presented himself alive to them, that is to the believers, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and doing what? Speaking about, everybody say it with me, the kingdom of God. So even after his resurrection, he's saying, listen guys, I'm here, I'm alive. Let's get back to the topic at hand, the kingdom of God. I started my ministry talking about it. I kept talking about it all throughout my ministry. And here I am resurrected. Guess what? We're going to keep talking about the kingdom of God. And it's this kingdom, by the way, that Jesus said is going to be preached to the ends of the earth. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So here's the point. To say that Jesus was for the kingdom of God is an understatement. He was obsessed with it. It was the lens through which he viewed everything. He preached about it. He talked about it. He discipled people in it. It is what dominated his thinking. And as we're going to see, it is the lens through which Jesus wants us to view everything as well. There's just one huge problem for those of us that are Christians. 
And it's the same problem that every Christian has had in every generation before us. And you want to know what that problem is? Here it is. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms that dominate our thinking. Amen? No pious people here. Come on, we're not all perfectly kingdom-minded. The kingdoms of this world can come to dominate our thinking. It's so incredibly easy. And the reason it's so easy is because we can observe the kingdoms of this world. We can interact with them. We get to vote and we can write letters to congressmen and we can do this, that, and the other thing. But the kingdom of God is so radically different. You can't see it unless you have spiritual eyes. You can't hear it unless you have spiritual ears. You can't perceive it unless your heart is right before God. This is a point that's so radically different as the kingdom of God. Jesus described it this way. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, not with your natural eye, nor with your natural ear. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in the midst of you. And therein lies a huge problem for us. You want to know what that is? The kingdom of God can literally be right under our noses and we can miss it. We, living in the 21st century, the kingdom of God can be literally right in front of us, God doing incredible things right in front of us, and we're oblivious to it. Why? Because we're using our physical eyes and our physical ears and our physical senses to focus on the physical kingdoms of this world while missing what is right in front of us. It happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus is standing in their presence. He says, the kingdom is in your midst. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? Now, I don't blame them. They're non-believers. Of course, they're not going to perceive the kingdom. But what about us who are God's children? We should be incredibly tuned into the kingdom of God. It should dominate our thinking. It should be the lens through which we view everything. But the question is, is it? Is it? Remember, Jesus did not promise to build an earthly empire. That's not why he came. If that is what he intended, his, he would have instructed his disciples to fight and to labor towards that end. And how do I know that? Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and laboring and doing everything they could that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so my disciples don't act like the people of this world. My disciples act totally different. They fight with weapons that are not of this world, spiritual weapons. And they see with spiritual eyes and they hear with spiritual ears. They're advancing a kingdom that is in your midst and you don't even see it, but that kingdom is advancing. That's the kingdom my disciples are obsessed with. It is what dominates their thinking. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we as believers need to be incredibly careful. And here's why. We need to be careful of conflating the kingdoms of this world with the kingdoms of God. So brace yourself for what I'm about to say because some of you are about to have a heart attack. The United States and the kingdom of God are not one and the same. <gasps> Everybody gasped together. Ready? <gasps> how, how could you say that? I said it. We want to be careful of conflating the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. The reality is that the kingdom of God stands completely set apart from and independent of the kingdoms of this world in every way imaginable. On top of that, the kingdom of God is in no way dependent upon the kings or kingdoms of this world in any way, shape, or form for our well-being or overall success. You understand that. The kings and kingdoms of this world can be radically opposed to the church and to the kingdom of God, and yet it will thrive. The kingdom of God will always grow and continue to achieve all that God has intended for it in every generation. And if you need proof of that, just look at the early church. The early church had the Roman Empire, the strongest, biggest, baddest world empire that the world had ever known. The church was birthed in the midst of this. 
The early emperors were absolutely opposed to the church and to what was happening. And yet what happened? In one generation, the disciples turned the Roman Empire on its head. The kingdom of God infiltrated the greatest power the world had ever known and turned it on its head in one generation. That is the power of the kingdom of God. But see, here's the danger. Just a couple centuries after that, Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And we might think to ourselves, well, that's a great thing. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Because now what those Christians are going to be tempted to do is think this, the Roman Empire and the kingdom of God are suddenly somehow one and the same. They're not. Because one of those kingdoms still exists today and another one's long gone. Right? As believers, we need to view the kingdoms of this world for what they are. They are instruments of God in God's hands to fulfill his purposes in each successive generation. That's it. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. The kingdoms of this world simply exist for one purpose, to exist, to bring glory to God and to prepare the way for his kingdom. That's really it. A great example of this can be seen in Romans chapter nine. Speaking to Pharaoh, okay? Pharaoh at this time is the most powerful man in the world. And, is, and this is what it says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. For God says, I raised you up. You, nobody put you there. I put you there. And you want to know why I put you there? To serve me and to serve my purposes. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the only reason you are where you are, Pharaoh. The kings and kingdoms of this world exist to serve God in each successive generation. Why do I say that? Because the kingdom of God is in no way dependent upon the kingdoms of this world for our success, folks. Don't ever lose sight of that and don't ever conflate them. The kingdom of God exists completely separate from the United States and any other kingdom in this world and any other kingdom that has existed in world history. And no matter who or what is said against us, the kingdom of God will thrive and will win. There'll be one kingdom left standing when all is said and done, and that is the kingdom that you and I are a part of. Let's take it a step further. Let's say that the kings and kingdoms of this world are radically set against the kingdom of God. We're going to be just fine. What about Satan himself? Well, we know that Satan is set against the kingdom of God. He hates the kingdom of God. And yet, what did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So even if Satan and all of the world empires are dead set against the kingdom of God, we're going to be just fine. But like I said, here's the point of everything I'm saying is that it is so easy for those of us that are believers to let the kingdoms of this world dominate, become the kingdoms that dominate our thinking. Which is one reason I believe Jesus said this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there is a ton of people ready to enter into the kingdom. We have one problem though. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Why is there so few people laboring in the kingdom of God? Could it be that God's children are so distracted by the worldly empires all around them that we're, we've got the kingdom of God advancing right under our noses and we miss it. There's a harvest to be had and we miss it. So I'm saying that is why it is so incredibly easy for you and for me. Me, I'm a pastor of a church and yet so often I am consumed with the kings and kingdoms of this world panicking and going into a panic about what's going to happen. What if this happens? Or they're running all sorts of scenarios as if something bad that happens over there is going to affect what happens over here. As a matter of fact, often what happens over there, even if it's bad, turns out to be God uses it for the good of what's happening here in the kingdom of God. 
And persecution is a great example of this. Over the last five to 10 years in this country, you felt the change that Christians are becoming more and more the enemy of what's happening in our culture. Has that been a bad thing? I don't think so. I will tell you that, again, I've said this before, it's the great divide. We're seeing churches that are faithful between those that are not, Christians that are faithful, Christians that are not. A great thing is happening. The true church, I would argue, in the United States is stronger than it's ever been, more awake, more alert than it's ever been because of what is happening in culture. So it doesn't matter what's going on out there. God will use it for his good purposes right now. See, it really raises the question. Here's the whole question of today, folks. What are you known to be for? You. Those that know you best. What do they say your heart beats for? Those that know you best. If they said, well, this is what they're all about. This is, well, if I had to define them, I would define them this way. This is what they're, what they're passionate about. What are you known to be for. Now, it's certainly okay to be known for more than one thing, right? Some of us are good-looking, witting, and charming, and you're just going to be known for those things. There's nothing you can do about it, right? That's a joke, of course. Okay, good. You guys with me? It's okay to be known for more than one thing. However, at the very top of the list of things that we are known for, folks, should be our passion for one kingdom and one kingdom above all other kingdoms, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, you want to know why all of this is so absolutely incredibly relevant to you and me. Here's why it's relevant. We are living at a time. Now, if you're my age, if you're in, dare I say, 30s and above, you grew up at a time in this country where what happened in Washington and what happened in the world, there, you, you still had a level of trust. We're at a different place in world history in just a few short years. And I really believe that people are becoming increasingly disillusioned with the kings and kingdoms of this world, especially the younger generation. The younger generation that is growing up now is going, uh, I'm, I'm not trusting the kings or kingdoms of this world. And, but I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a sad thing, but it's not a bad thing. You want to know why? Here's why. Because as the people become increasingly disillusioned with what they see happening in the world and the kings and kingdoms of this world, we who are Christians have an opportunity to say, let us tell you about a king and a kingdom that is beyond your wildest imagination. But will we? Will we do that? Folks, the kingdom of God will not be on anyone's radar if it is not on our radar. How can we expect the world to be thinking about the kingdom or knowing about the kingdom? How can it be on their radar if it's never on ours? So as we as believers, we are perhaps living at one of the most distracting times in world history in which not only are people distracted, but people are becoming disillusioned. Folks, that is an opportunity for the church to rise up and go, let me tell you about, let me proclaim the gospel, not just of salvation, but the gospel of the kingdom, the king in the kingdom that is eternal. So the question is this, how, how do we get God's kingdom on our radar and keep it on our radar? How does it start with us? Because folks, if it doesn't start with the church, who's going who's to be passionate about God's kingdom if it's not you and me? If everybody's running around worried about the king and kingdoms of this world, whether, by the way, it's not just the big kings and kingdoms of this world that we could be obsessed with. It can be our own personal kingdom. It can be our work kingdom, our home kingdom, our whatever kingdom, our online kingdom, whatever it is. We can be, there's a million kingdoms that we can obsess about and be thinking about. So how do we get God's kingdom central in our thinking? Well, first and foremost, do exactly what Jesus said. Seek it. But seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. To seek the kingdom simply means prioritize it in your life to where it becomes the driving passion. It's not just on my priority list. It's at the top of my priority list. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I'm going to seek above all things throughout the day is the kingdom of God. 
From the moment we wake up to the moment that our pillow hits the bed at night, we are kingdom-minded, kingdom-focused, kingdom-driven. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul commanded the early churches to do, right? If then you have been raised with Christ, do what? Seek. Seek the things that are above. Get your mind off of this world and set it on what is above, the kingdom of God. Look at things with spiritual eyes and with spiritual ears. Don't act as the world acts. By the way, that's in the imperative, which means it's a command. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind. Again, that's in the imperative as well. That's a command. Set your mind on things above. Now, here's the kicker. Not on things that are on earth. So many of us as Christians, here's what we do. And I do it all the time. I got something pressing going on, whether that be in my own little kingdom or here, you know, whatever it might be over here, or I'm worried about something that's going on in this country. And I say, well, for just this little short season, I'm going to set the kingdom of God aside because this, this kingdom over here needs all of my attention. No, this kingdom needs your attention, but whatever you do, don't stop seeking this first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God at all times and in all ways. It's when we seek God's kingdom first that the promise of that verse comes to light. And all of these things will be added unto you. God will take care of the rest of your life when you and I do one thing, when we are kingdom-minded, seeking God's kingdom above all things. It goes back to the question, what are you known for? Those that know you best, what do they say your heart beats for? What kingdom? Is it a football team? Is it a sport? Is it a politician? What kingdom? Your own personal kingdom? Your online kingdom? Whatever it is, what does your heart beat for? You want a great example of two people, one who's radically seeking the kingdom and one who's not? It's right here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of what? Men. By the way, when we read this passage, we often fixate right there on get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's a powerful statement for Jesus to say that. That's incredible. But why does he say it? He says it because Peter has got his priorities all mixed up. He's got his mind set on things below, not on things above. He's not seeking God's kingdom. Peter's seeking some kingdom that he has made up in his mind that, that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And we can do that too, as we get fixated on some sort of kingdom and we think this is the kingdom that I need to be obsessed about. No, whatever kingdom you have made up in your mind that you think so important, if it's not part of the kingdom of God, don't let it take you and hold you as it does. Now, you'll notice something important from this passage. Kingdom priorities will often directly conflict with personal desires. It happens right here. Peter wanted one thing, but God's kingdom demanded another. And so the question becomes, as Christians, are we willing to take our personal desires and bring them into submission to kingdom priorities? And everybody in our hearts, we sit here and we go, of course I do. Do you really? Do you really? And here's why. Doing that may come at a great cost to you. Are you willing to pay that price? Now, the reason I say that is because Peter isn't the only one that had to question, do I bring my personal desires and bring them into submission to kingdom priorities? Jesus himself had to do it. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. What did he pray? Saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. Jesus had personal desires. Let this cup pass from me. But what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus brought his personal desires under kingdom priorities. He submitted them to it. And guess what? It cost him his life. Are you and I willing to bring our personal desires and say, Lord, I'm going to bring them 
under to submission to kingdom priorities, that your kingdom dominates my thinking and that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what it costs me, I'm going to be kingdom focused, seeking it first and serving you and this kingdom with all of my life. Part of seeking God's kingdom first really comes down to that. It's saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. Now, as we seek God's kingdom in this way, as we, if we're seeking it and it's our highest priority, folks, there's going to be no doubt in anyone's mind where our citizenship is. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. You're not going to have to tell people, I'm a Christian and I'm kingdom-minded. They're going to know it. They're going to see it. Your family's going to see it. Your coworkers are going to see it. They're going to see you talking about it, thinking about it, praying for it. They're going to see that your citizenship isn't here on earth. Your loyalty doesn't lie with any king or kingdom in this world. It lies with one king and one kingdom. That is the kingdom of God. But we got to seek it. That's how you get it on your radar. Start seeking it. Make it your top priority. Here's another thing you can do. Start praying for it. Why do I say that? What did Jesus say? When he taught his disciples to pray, he said this, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom come, not my will be done, not, hey God, take my kingdom and my will and my desires and somehow meld them together with your kingdom. No, no, I'm dead. I have died to myself. I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. And I have one desire that your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, if whatever it costs me, may that happen. If I'm living under a bridge because I have submitted my desires to your kingdom priorities. And if that means ultimately that I'm living under a bridge, homeless somewhere, so be it, God. I am at your disposal. I am your servant in this generation to advance your kingdom, no matter the cost to me. Listen, If you want to know what you're for, if you're not sure, if you came in today and you're like, well, what am I for? I wonder what people think I'm for. You want to know what you're for? Just listen to what consumes your prayers. That'll tell you what you're for. Whatever consumes your prayers is what you're for. It's just that simple. Folks, listen, pray for God's kingdom. Seek it and start praying for it. And I guarantee you, if you're seeking it and praying for it, it'll be dead center on that radar. It'll be right in the middle of your radar at all times. There's no shortage of ways that you can pray for the kingdom. Pray for its protection, its growth, its impact, its health. Let us have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the ways that God is moving in our presence that the world will not perceive. The world is obsessed about the kings and kingdoms of this world, and unfortunately, too many Christians are as well, that we miss what God is doing right here, right now. You want a great example, by the way, of somebody praying for the kingdom of God, specifically for the citizens of the kingdom of God? It's Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that is, his, his disciples, his immediate disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, that is, his disciples, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is true. So here's a great prayer you can pray. For as much as God has done in your life, pray for the generation coming behind you, your kids and grandkids. Say, Lord, give them twice as much as you gave me in terms of faith and passion and desire for you. Make them better in every way than what you graciously did for me. Do it for them times a hundred. Then he goes on to say this, as you sent me into the world, so I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only. So remember, he's praying for his immediate disciples, but then he prays for you and me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they may also be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's Jesus praying for the citizens of the kingdom. Now, 
So what does that mean with regard to the kings and kingdoms of this world? Well, we still have a responsibility to the kings and kingdoms of this world. For example, the Bible says that we're to pray for the kings of this world. First of all, then, I urge you that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we do still have a responsibility as believers in this world. We're to pray for the kings of this world. We're to let our light shine. That's why, folks, when it's time to vote, vote. Let your light shine before the kings and kingdoms of this world. Seek to influence the kings and kingdoms of this world. That is why I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are lawyers and who go into politics. They're fighting the good fight on our behalf. And you think, well, those that are in politics or who are lawyers who are fighting that good fight, well, they're, maybe they're too worldly-minded. You want to know who the most kingdom-minded people are? It's often those people who are the most kingdom-minded. The reason they're in politics and that they are lawyers and that they're doing what they're doing on our behalf is because they are absolutely so kingdom-minded. And so, but here's the deal. We're not all called to that. Some believers are called to that, and I praise God. Others of us, there's other people I know that politics is nowhere on their radar. They're a Christian, but it's nowhere on their radar. But here's the point. The one thing that should unify all of us as believers in this world, whether you're totally into politics and fighting the good fight on that front or you're fighting the fight somewhere else, the one thing that should unite all of us is that the one kingdom that we are most passionate about is the kingdom of God. Amen? We are obsessed about it. We think about it. We live, eat, and breathe the kingdom of God. We proclaim it. We pray for it. We seek it. This is what needs to unify us. Again, how can we expect it to be on other people's radar if it's never on ours? So we seek the kingdom of God. We prioritize the kingdom of God. One last thing we need to do, and I really do mean this, I truly think kingdom language is fundamentally missing from the vocabulary of most Christians. We just don't talk about it enough. Romans 10, 15 says this, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, many of us, when we read that verse, we think, well, yeah, when I share the gospel, that's, that's me, my feet bringing the gospel, the good news to someone. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news, the gospel, absolutely. But here's the problem is as Christians... We're often great at sharing the plan of salvation, but we often forget and neglect the privileges of salvation. You know what one of the greatest privileges is? Is that you enter the kingdom. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the family and you enter the kingdom of heaven. You become a member, literally an heir of the kingdom of God. It's one of the greatest privileges of all time. It's like telling a child who is an orphan that they're about to be adopted by a king. That's great news. But never telling them about the kingdom that they're going to inherit as well. The king is amazing and he's coming with a kingdom and it's all yours. And so my point is, is when you bring good news, bring the fullest of all the good news, the king and the kingdom. Proclaim it. Talk about it. Put it in your vocabulary. Let the people of this world, when they're obsessing about the kings and kingdoms of this world and the things of this world, and their vocabulary is this, that, and the other thing. Let your vocabulary be absolutely different. Why do you keep talking about the kingdom of God? Why do you keep doing this? Because that's all I'm obsessed about. It's the last kingdom that will be standing. It's the one kingdom that I'm in, that it's mine, it's forever. And I want you to come into it as well. And like I said, folks, as this world prayerfully becomes more disillusioned with what's happening in this world, that's a good thing.
now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Respectable Sins. Listeners, this is Terry. It's time for the Christians Who Read Books. In this program, we recommend and reflect together the faith based literature worth reading. Starting today, we will discuss a book entitled Respectable Sins Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. For us as Christians, to experience the true blessings, joy, and salvation, there is something we must confront first our own sins and the need for repentance. Through the book, we may be transformed into holy and devout individuals in the sight of God. The book delves deep into the nature of sin that lies within us and encourages us to face it to the point of repentance. The author of this book said, I will talk about the subtle sins that are not easy to recognize and turn away from, but at the same time, I hope this book will show us hope. We should not bury ourselves in sin to the point where we cannot see hope. God has already resolved our sins and the power of sin that dominates us through the gospel, so we must believe in that gospel. The author of this book, Jerry Bridges, passed away in 2016 at the age of 86. He spent his lifetime pursuing holiness and godliness, constantly striving for spiritual growth, and leaving behind a legacy of books that influenced countless Christians. He was a faithful Bible teacher, working with Navigator since 1966, training university students and ministers, and serving churches and various Christian organizations. Among his numerous books, there are titles like The Pursuit of Holiness, The Practice of Godliness, Tell Yourself the Truth, and Transforming Grace. As you might surmise from these titles, he was a theologian, author, and a person of God who relentlessly pursued holiness, godliness, and continuous spiritual growth. The book we will explore, Respectable Sins, deals with subtle and refined sins that may not be on the list of punishable offenses in our society, but they are nonetheless present and are deeply rooted in our human nature. Talking about sins can be uncomfortable for many of us and even painful. A mere suggestion of sins could get us down, and talking about sins might even make us feel like we're condemned. Perhaps some of us might even be tempted to turn off the broadcast, or if we are reading the book, close the pages and set it aside. Most of us tend to think of ourselves as being good and would rather talk about encouragement, courage, and praises than be convicted and condemned by raising the issues of sin. Nevertheless, Jerry Bridges reminds us to stay with the book until the end and urges us to keep our minds open to considering what he calls respectable sins. Even though discussing sin can be uncomfortable and unpleasant, Jerry Bridges believes that once we realize how bad things are, we will appreciate the good news that follows, which will then be even more joyful. Do you ever use the phrase becoming dull? It can be used to refer to a kitchen knife or one's own heart. In the Bible, this term is used to refer to becoming hardened, unfeeling, and spiritually insensitive. 
Do you feel that you have become insensitive to your sins and your heart has become dull? We pray that our time together will be an opportunity for you to re-examine your spiritual state. We pray that you will become awakened, expose all your hidden sins before the Lord, repent, and turn back to Him. Although facing your own sins can be painful and agonizing, it is necessary process before the healing comes. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12-13, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. People who heard those words from Jesus would have shown two different reactions. One group of people might have reasoned, I'm not sick, and I'm not a sinner. While others might have acknowledged, I am a sinner and in need of healing. You might ask, How can we know if we are spiritually sick? Just as you come to know you are sick by feeling pain or running a temperature, or you might find out you are sick after a regular checkup at the hospital when the doctor told you you need treatment, you're sick. The Bible calls us saints. Saints are people whom God has set apart, called out from the world. Even if we are ordinary and not particularly mature believers, we are saints. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people, we are sanctified and called by God in Christ Jesus. In society, we often say things like acting like a soldier, acting like a police officer, acting like a student, or acting like a teacher. These phrases imply that certain roles have certain standards that set them apart. A soldier must be brave and prepared to defend the nation. A police officer must protect citizens from crime. A student must approach learning with diligence. And a teacher must provide students with proper guidance to learn. So what about saints? How should we as saints live? We should live in a way that reflects God's holiness, just as Jesus did, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit and living a life that is set apart from the world. However, there is something that can prevent saints from living as saints. That is sin. Regardless of whether it's a minor sin that may seem insignificant or a grave sin like murder that everyone would agree as sin, sin is sin. It can prevent saints from living as saints. Are you living your life befitting of a saint? You shouldn't forget that you are a saint. Being a saint, not something you remember only during Sunday sermons. However, many saints not only fail to live as saints, but also do not consider things like gossip or sins of impatience as sins. As a result, saints often deny their own sin and live as if they were just like the people of the world. Would you stay with us as we consider Jerry Bridges' messages, which touch upon the sins that may have numbed our hearts as Christians? Do you desire to become a holy and devout individual in the eyes of God? If so, we encourage you to consider respectable sins and confront your respectable sins. That concludes today's program for the Christian Who Read Book. Who are we but sinners saved by grace? Guilty of the charge, but acquitted in the case. How can the most holy God allow us to walk free? 
Jesus paid in full for all our sins at Calvary. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.